Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Tuesday, July 21, 2020. Special live broadcast with Hershey Dwoskin in the headlines. Hi, Hershey. Hi. Hi, Daryl. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much, so, so much for tuning in. And I hope you're going to have an interesting uh, hour this afternoon. I have sort of changed um, a bit of the topic um, that I wanted to speak about today uh, because of something very interesting that I read. And um, it's uh, something to get away a little bit from the uh, current uh, troubles that bedevil us, but connected all the same. Uh, I'm going to start by saying that I read a very long article um, put out on population projections to the year 2100. And so what this, um, what this article is all about is an estimation of where the world will be in 2050 and where the world will be in 2100. Now, I know that pretty well, I'm guessing all of our listeners will not be around by 2100. And yet, and yet, it's not in, in sort of terms of human history, it's not all that far away. In terms of planning for what uh, services a state shall provide, it's really not that far away. Um, the other day, I rode across the brand new Champlain Bridge, uh, replacing the old one, which is just built in 1960 and lasted uh, 60 years. So if somebody is building something today to last for 60 years, pretty well close enough to get to 2100. And that's why these uh, statistics are just so, um, so important and in a way so earth-shaking. So uh, let me begin by saying that the, there is an institution called the Institution of Health Metrics and Evaluation. And this is out of the University of Washington. So this is a very highly respected um, uh, source of information. And like every other prediction, no, nothing's to say it's going to be true. Uh, because you want to predict the future 80 years from now, the farther away from today that you get, of course, the harder it is to make an accurate prediction. Nevertheless, uh, if you want to um, uh, plan ahead, you have to make predictions. And so, uh, in short, what this survey says, what this study says, is that they're, they're trying to guess where the world will be in 2100. And they, the answer they come up with is that except for Africa, all of the other continents on the world will lose population during the uh, 21st century. In other words, this century, Except for Africa, uh, if you take the top uh, amount of people um, in these various countries, they will all go down by 2100. Um, and so the uh, estimation is that the world will hit its peak in population in 2064 at about 9 billion people. So right now in the world, somewhere, we have somewhere around seven and a half billion people. And they predict that by 2064, there will be nine billion. 
Um, and then the population will go down from there till the end of the uh, 21st century. Some countries will go down by a shocking amount. Now let's start looking at that. So both Spain today, Spain and South Korea both have about 52 million people in them, about. And they will both go down to 27 million by the end of uh, the 21st century. That means that it's predicted that these countries will lose practically half their population from uh, now until the, um, you know, till 2100. Uh, the country that is the fastest declining in the whole world, even today, and continuing on, you'll never guess which one it is, it's Bulgaria. Bulgaria in Southeastern Europe will go from 7 million uh, today, and they were higher 10 years ago, to 2.6 million by the end of, by the 2100. That means that they'll lose two thirds of their population by the end of the century. Uh, if you just stop to think about it, uh, what significance does that have? Well, while you're thinking about it, I'll just continue on a little bit um, in this projection. They say that 55 countries will lose at least a quarter of their population to the end of the century. Um, um, India, which will be the world's largest country, uh, will go from 1.4 billion today to 1.1 billion. China will go from 1.5 billion to 730 million. It means China will lose half its population. Japan will also lose half its population from 126 million to around 60 something million. So um, these changes are not insignificant. They're like huge. If you think of how many houses that you'll need, how many schools you'll need, how many hospitals you'll need, how many um, uh, public transportation services, every single thing that society does um, can be drastically, drastically changed by the end of the century. Um, Africa uh, it will be the only growing continent. So the fastest growing country in the world will be Nigeria, which now has somewhere around 200 million people. In 1950, they had around 30 million people. They will go up to 730 million people by the end of the, uh, by the, end of the century, and they will be the second largest country in the world in population uh, in 2100. What about us? What about Canada and the US? We're going to have, unlike the rest of the countries, uh, many of them in the Western world, we're going to have moderate growth. So the prediction is that um, uh, we will be somewhere around 500 million people um, yeah, by, by the end of 2100. And today, we're somewhere near 380 million people. So we'll have kind of modest, moderate growth, but um, uh, uh, you know, Africa as a continent in 1950 had to, a whole continent had 250 million, and by 2100 they'll have 4.3 billion. 
So remember, I was saying that the world today is somewhere around uh, seven and a half billion. So by the end of 2100, Africa will have more than half of the people that live in the world today. Um, and uh, uh, Europe similarly will be going down from, uh, from uh, 750 million people to 630 million by the end of 2100. So, you know, looking at those figures, and then we'll get into some cities, um, what does it mean in a practical way? I think of yourself wanting to buy a house or a house for your children and saying, well, you know, if in 50 years or 60 years there'll be, you know, half of the number of people in the country, what would that do for housing prices? Um, what will that do for uh, real estate in general, for stores and shopping centers and office buildings, if half the people are living in the country that are, are living there today? Um, planners don't usually think that far in advance, but that's why these university think tanks do provide some kind of a guidance so that people can do long-term planning. Um, uh, everything in infrastructure, uh, from roads and bridges to airports, um, will be less needed in the future. And if that's the case, well, then, you know, better start planning for these things now. Um, the average, the, the, the reason, the main reason why this decline will happen is because the fertility rate, in other words, the number of children that every woman has, has gone down drastically from 50 years ago till today and will continue to go down in the future. Um, the average age in 1950 in the whole world was 20 years old. In 1950, the average person was 20 years old. Um, in today, in 2020, the average person in the whole world is 31. And by 2100, that average will be 42. Now, um, this might sound young to you, but that's only because in the Western world, we're much, much older than these figures uh, show. Uh, our average ages are probably 10 years higher than the ones that I said just now. And that's because in the developing countries, uh, specifically in Africa, uh, somewhat in Latin America, uh, uh, and in um, India, Pakistan, the other, Indonesia, people are much younger on average than we are in the Western world. So we are already today where the whole rest of the world will be in 80 years in terms of age. Um, uh, the average fertility rate, they predict to be 1.9 children per uh, mother. Um, and uh, today it's on the whole world, in the whole world it's 2.5. However, there's so many countries in the world today where the fertility rate is so far below two, which is the replacement rate, that uh, these countries uh, are uh, having more deaths than births every year. So countries like, especially in Southeast Asia, countries like Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, even Thailand, um, the birth rate is, is way below two 
two children per mother. The highest birth rates in the world are still in Africa, although even those have come down. But in times, in the recent past, uh, in Niger, which was the most uh, fertile country, uh, the, average, the average woman had seven children. Um, and so you could see that if, you know, in several generations, if every mother has seven children, how fast the population can explode. Conversely, if you only have one child per person, per couple, uh, you can see over several generations how the population can shrink. And so this is the main explanation for these differences, which is the lowering of the uh, birth rate. So why is the birth rate going down? Um, you know, happily speaking, the main reason for this is that up until now, up until the COVID crisis, um, the average income and disposable income and wealth in the world has been going up. The number of people living in poverty, meaning in absolute poverty, sometimes defined as under $2 a day per person, that number has gone down by over 25% in the last 30 years. So what happens when families have a little bit of money? They start to think of their children and their children's futures, and especially schooling of the children and housing of the children. Uh, if they have a little bit of extra money, uh, they say, well, you know, that in, in the short run of the first, uh, at least say 18 years, children cost money. And so if they've got some money to spare, they want to have fewer children so as to give each children, each child an opportunity. When you're living in a complete agricultural country with no education whatsoever, uh, living a subsistence uh, in, a far, uh, income, then uh, starting at the age of seven, children become assets and not liabilities. They could go and work in the fields, they could go and tend animals, they can go and pick fruit. And so uh, the child is not meant to be educated, but to be a worker as soon as they're able to do that. Society has changed so that uh, children are seen as uh, more long-term assets than short-term assets. And so that if you can educate the child uh, until they can go to get some higher education or technical education, their lives will be better off. And uh, perhaps uh, in, the in the longer run, even the parents' lives will be better off because the children are better off. And so uh, having fewer children is the solution to that issue. Uh, it's to be noted that in most parts of the world, maybe even in all parts of the world, birth control is something that's easily available. But it's more easily available in most parts of the world than it is in the United States where you know, there's still issues over, over, uh, over these type of things. Um, now, of course, there's other, other aspects that can affect population growth, and we're in one right now. So this epidemic that we're suffering now um, has already killed over 600,000 people, which is not a lot, um, in a population of 7.5 billion. But if it continues, uh, it, it can have an effect. Uh, similarly, wars and civil wars 
uh, natural disasters, floods, volcanoes, and things like that do kill a number of people every year. And that also can lower the population in certain specific places where these things are occurring. Um, the fertility rate in 1950, in other words, the number of children in the world per person was four. And uh, it's going down to 1.9. So half the number of children are being born uh, in the near future than were being were born in 1950, and clearly that has to do that has to affect the population over time. Um, besides fertility, what else can affect uh, population growth and change? Migration. So certainly migration, people moving from one place to another, will uh, affect population growth in certain countries. Um, in some countries, migration consists, almost consists of all the population. In other words, if you take places in the uh, Gulf states, in the United Arab Emirates or Kuwait or Qatar or even Saudi Arabia, there are, uh, not including Saudi Arabia, but the other places, there are more people who were born abroad than who are born in that country. Um, migration happens for two basic reasons. One is for economic reasons, so that the people can get better jobs and more income and send the money home. And the other one, of course, is uh, fleeing wars and disasters, refugees, in other words. So both those issues cause people to leave one country and move to another country. Um, and that is uh, one of the main reasons why um, the uh, Canada and the US will not lose population, even though our fertility rate is going down, as I said before. So we're getting a lot of new people coming into our countries uh, well, you know, of course, President Trump has closed the borders uh, to all but Norwegians. That's a joke. But uh, um, uh, immigration is what has kept our populations growing. Um, and, of course, a growing population um, where work is available leads to better uh, standards of living for everyone. Um, um, now another another part of the uh, of the equation not only is the birth rate but also the death rate. So in other words, if people uh, are dying earlier, that will tend to decrease the population. If people, of course, live longer, that will uh, slow the um, decline in the population. And we are an aging society. Um, uh, the uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 living the um, what's it called the life expectancy figures have been going up steadily, and they are uh, now at seventy nine years old um, in the uh, for the average person in the uh, in the developed world and 65 in the poorer world. And by 2050, so that's not very long, uh, we're moving up to about 83 
in the uh, rich world and 79 in the poor world. So no, in other words, the uh, poor countries uh, life expectancy has in, is increasing a lot faster than in the wealthy world. Some countries, of course, have right now life expectancies well over 80. Uh, Japan is the country today with the longest life expectancy. And uh, in Japan, there are today 100,000 people who are over 100 years old, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, you know, that's a, a huge um, change in society and a huge, um, uh, a huge kind of, we'll call it the investment uh, uh, necessity for countries to provide for. So if people are living longer, um, it means that there has to be more uh, specialized housing, more specialized healthcare, uh, given to these people and if the average age is creeping up what that means is that the working population percentage goes down and so if people stop working at a certain age let's say 65 uh, and the average age keeps creeping up there'll be fewer and fewer workers who have to support more and more older people um, clearly at a certain point this has to stop and countries are today trying to figure out what to do about it. One of the things that could be done is simply to raise the retirement age or not have any retirement age at all. Uh, another thing is to encourage and allow people to work part-time uh, when they get older. Um, and um, in general, to encourage the ongoing health of the population so that even if people are, uh, are uh, more seniors in their 80s that they could live and produce um, you know, for society rather than to uh, become sick and to need uh, society's help. So all of these things are important and all affect the, the uh, kind of population statistics that we were talking about. Um, to go back to the issue of migration, uh, some, for some countries' lives, migration is the key to their economic success. So meaning that um, if a country does not have a, a lot of natural resources, if a country does not have a huge manufacturing base, uh, if a country gets populated uh, more than the country can support, the answer is for people to leave the country, move to a wealthier country, and send money back home. There are many countries in this world whose um, economies depend so much on money sent back home that this money consists of more than 10% of the total economy of those countries. So, for example, we know, uh, you know in the United States how many Mexicans, how many um, uh, people from Latin America, uh, work in the States, send money home. Uh, the work may be permanent or may be temporary, but uh, they experience millions and millions of people coming to live in the States. Uh, in fact, I think I read somewhere that there are 40 million Mexicans living in the United States today. And um, almost all of these people have ties back home or to their towns and villages where they came from and relatives.
and they send money back home. One of the best known examples of this economy is in the Philippines. So um, the Philippines has special colleges in that country that specifically train people to go abroad, to become, for example, nurses, to even work in um, elderly care, to even work as uh, home help. Uh, they, they have colleges to teach people how to be maids and to teach people how to be babysitters and to teach people how to look after the elderly so that these people can have a diploma, go abroad, and then send money back home to uh, their relatives who then spend that money and make the economy in the Philippines grow. Uh, without these people, uh, many of these countries uh, would be in disastrous shape. Uh, Bangladesh is another one of these countries which sends millions of people to the Middle East, especially uh, Nepal, uh, a country in the, uh, north of India in the Himalayas, really not much of an economy. They send thousands of people uh, abroad, uh, including people to Israel to go and work in, in various uh, fields. Um, so these are the countries that have the largest uh, outflow of people to countries abroad. Uh, needless to say, over time, uh, after a few generations, these people may lose their, their ties with their mother country and therefore less money may come back. But in the short run, this is something that helps their economies tremendously. There's also, of course, migration due to uh, terrible things. Uh, Myanmar, Syria, Venezuela, these are countries where people have been kicked out or moved out um, because of civil wars, because of, uh, um, you know, danger to themselves. And um, these are migrants who are, generally speaking, not assets to the countries they move to because their whole lives are disrupted. Um, they don't have the training that they need. They don't have the language skills. They, uh, in a way, need more from society outside of their countries than they needed when they were back home. And uh, this is a sort of a long-term investment for the host countries to, um, uh, you know, house them, feed them, look after their health and education, and only then will they be able to be productive members of those various societies. And this is one reason why uh, Europe was so upset back in 2015 when waves of Syrian, Afghan, uh, and other refugees from the Middle East came pouring over the borders uh, to sort of overwhelm those countries who had no plan in place to deal with them. Um, it's a long-term, uh, it's a long-term exercise to get these people uh, integrated, but once they are integrated, they become as good members of society as anyone else. But it's a, it's a culture clash, religious clash, all kinds of other problems go along with this type of migration. Um, um, the uh, COVID uh, crisis that we're having now has had huge effects on this movement of people. So uh, because international travel is stopped, uh, the normal migration which would be taking place has stopped. 
and um, uh, you know, people, uh, except for the emergencies that I just mentioned, people migrate to better themselves. And if COVID is not allowing them to move, then they can't better themselves. Migration also doesn't have to be from one country to another. It could be from one place in the same country to a different place in the same country. And uh, some of the um, best examples of that are uh, people who work in tourism. So we all know that tourism uh, requires a huge amount of labor. People who work in hotels, people who work in restaurants, people who work out on the street selling stuff to tourists, uh, drivers, bus drivers, taxi drivers, uh, rickshaw drivers, and, 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 and everybody in between. And if tourism has stopped, all these jobs have stopped. Now, what happens to all the people who work in those jobs? They can't live in a city uh, which is expensive. They can't live in a city where there is no income. And so they move back to wherever they came from um, in order to uh, save money and be with the rest of their families and perhaps work in agriculture, um, which can always use extra hands. And I just finished reading an article about this in Bali how um, Bali, whose economy is, is, is more than 50% dependent on tourism, has had thousands and thousands of tourist workers leave the tourist towns and beaches and move back into the countryside to be with their families. This, of course, is a net loss for everybody, for the country, for the people themselves, etc. So uh, the COVID epidemic has stopped what normally would be continuing which is this sort of migration from one country or to another to better uh, themselves and from one part of one country to another part of the country also to better the lives of the migrants. And um, uh, what's often forgotten, and I'll mention it again, is it's not just the migrants who benefit from this movement, it's the families of the migrants who stay home uh, who receive money from these migrants. And it's the country themselves who receive money from the families of the migrants when they make the economy uh, grow, when they themselves invest in little businesses and stores and, and little manufacturers to, um, to use the money wisely that gets sent to them from abroad. Um, well, uh, what other effect does this uh, population uh, decrease have on the world? Well, one of the big issues, and perhaps I'll speak about it a, a, another time, is the idea of climate change. And uh, it's pretty well understood now that we, it's pretty well understood now that we are um, in a period of climate change where in general the world is getting warmer and where the degree of this change is getting faster as, as we go along. And that this has, uh, incorporates dangers to the um, world uh, as a whole, uh, dangers which um, uh, may be irreversible at some point or other. So uh, in general, the accepted theory is that the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere goes up as the world's population goes up. 
this concentration is coming from burning of fossil fuels. So that includes cars, uh, trucks, airplanes, cement factories, um, heating plants, electricity generating plants. And uh, the more carbon dioxide that's put into the atmosphere, it acts as a kind of a um, insulator, not to allow the uh, heat to escape, uh, the heat of the earth to escape into outer space. It's like a kind of a blanket. And um, that this just keeps going. And as this concentration gets more and more, and the blanket gets thicker and thicker, the world will get warmer and warmer. And as the world gets warmer and warmer, the, the um, uh, sea level rises because warm water takes up more space than cold water. And because the melting of the ice caps and glaciers uh, will lead to the rise in sea levels. And this rise of sea levels will lead to catastrophes in all of the cities that are uh, by the ocean. Uh, Tokyo, New York, etc., London even, etc. So this has really uh, quite strong effects and predictable effects on, on the uh, climate change on, on, uh, on um, you know, uh, world's uh, um, future. Now, what happens if you have a situation where the carbon dioxide in the world goes down? Uh, theoretically, uh, then the climate cooling will happen and the reverse effect will happen. Um, now, one of the reasons how this could be stopped is that you simply have fewer people in the world than you used to have. So each person is breathing less, they eat less, they need less. Um, livestock who also produce uh, CO2, they drive less, uh, they don't heat their homes because there are no homes. And so you could see this sort of reversal um, taking place towards the end of the century, which over time would also tend to reverse the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So this, in a sense, is a, um, uh, could be a positive uh, outcome of of the population decline in the world. Now, we're seeing, in a way, some of this today because of COVID. So um, because airplanes have shut down, because there's much less travel on roads than there was uh, in normal times, um, the amount of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere is predicted uh, to, um, uh, uh, to go down. Um, now, of course, this COVID situation could be temporary and it could be a kind of a bounce back effect. But in the meantime, one of the good things, so-called good things coming out of this COVID epidemic is that the uh, carbon dioxide um, uh, being put into the atmosphere is predicted to be much less than has been the case for the last 10 years. Um, let me now, uh, let me also mention that not only will, not only will, will a population decline lead to a decline in the, uh, carbon dioxide, but also the changes that have been going on up until now, which is the replacement of, uh, carbon fuels by wind and solar power, 
the um, changeover from gasoline and diesel engines to uh, battery electric battery type engines. Um, if you if you add this change to the dropping of the population, you could see uh, pretty well that uh, the sort of um, emergency, panicky kind of thinking that has uh, taken climate change people by storm. Uh, if you sort of project ahead 60 years, uh, it may not be such a crisis, um, um, you know, as we think of it today. Um, I'm going to now uh, just give some examples of cities that we all know what the populations are today and what they'll be by 2100. So these are figures that you have to understand are, are, are somewhat arbitrary because when you look at a city, you have to say, well, where does a city begin and where does it end? And so, you know, Greater Montreal, is it Montreal and Laval or is it Montreal and South Shore and Laval or is it Montreal on the Laurentians and Laval? So, you know, you have to kind of... Uh, you know, be a little bit uh, a little bit flexible on looking at some of these numbers. But in any case, in any case, the largest city in the world in population today is Tokyo, and Tokyo has somewhere around 36 million people in Greater Tokyo. Um, just to remind you, our country here, Canada, has about 37 million people today. So imagine fitting the entire, the entire country of Canada inside the city of Tokyo. It's really quite unbelievable. But the projection is that by 2100, uh, Tokyo will, instead of having 36 million people, will have 25 million people. So they're going to lose 9 million people in pretty short order. What's going to happen to all those houses, all the stores? all the um, apartments, all the office buildings. I mean, nine million people is not nothing. You know, the people who are, are there one year and gone the next. Just imagine and think about that. So Tokyo will be the, is the largest city in, say, in 2025, but by 2100, they will be the 28th largest city. That's how much they're population goes down and how other ones have come up. Um, New York City. Greater New York today has 21 million people uh, and is the seventh biggest urban agglomeration in the world. Uh, they are going to go to around 30 million people, so somewhat of an increase, but they will be the 22nd big, biggest city. Now, of course, this was done before COVID, and I know Somewhere around 30,000 New Yorkers died uh, so far, but that's really uh, small potatoes in the whole picture. Uh, guess what? Uh, Toronto, Greater Toronto, is today the 60th biggest urban agglomeration in the world. And Toronto has, Greater Toronto has 6 million people. Now, I don't know, to my thinking, Greater Toronto in that case means Hamilton, and, uh, you know, points north, let's say. But uh, 6 million people for the Golden Horseshoe, that's about right. Uh, their population will go to 8.3 million 
in 2100. So fear not for your children's uh, house values. Um, but Toronto will be the 96th biggest urban agglomeration, even with that increase. Uh, and today they're the 60th. Um, interestingly enough, Beijing, which is today the 15th biggest uh, city with 15 million people, they're predicted to have 15 million people, the same number in 2100, and they will be the 52nd biggest city. Now, let's look at some of the African ones. Um, the number two city, the, num the number one city in the world in 2100 will be Lagos, Nigeria. So Lagos is today the, uh, we'll call it the um, financial capital of Nigeria. It's a big, sprawling, uh, unwieldy city as it is now. Um, the population of Lagos now is 16 million people and God only knows how they can all fit in there. Their population is going to go from 16 million to 88 million. 88 million in, 21, in 2100. Imagine, you know, 88 million is more than two Canada's. Um, imagine a city with 88 million people in it. It's like, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's unbelievable. How will the services be provided? The transportation, the housing, the schooling, the healthcare, and everything else for uh, a city which is the size, uh, which will be the size of most countries today um, uh, in this world. The number two city in the world in 2100, what will it be? Nobody's gonna guess. It's gonna be Kinshasa, the capital of the Congo. They're gonna end up with 84 million people. Today they have 17 million. Uh, and all the, the people in these cities are poor now. Uh, it's hard to believe that they're going to be any better off with so many extra people uh, in those cities. So um, those countries are gonna have to do some fast planning and, and management. Uh, and it's not just a question of schools and buildings, but what about uh, sanitation, garbage collection, sewers, sewers, provision of fresh water, uh, the basics that we take for granted. How do you provide that to 88 million people um, or 83 million people in countries which today are barely able to provide those services for the people they have already. Um, the third largest city in 2100 is going to be Dar es Salaam in Tanzania with 74 million people. Um, so you see there's a pattern. The pattern is that the biggest cities in the world in 80 years are all gonna be in Africa. Uh, the 13th and 14th biggest cities, most of you have never heard of. Um, uh, and uh, when I saw their names on the list, I said, oh, I know those cities, but how could they be anybody? They are Lilongwe and Blantyre. So who am I? I wish, I wish you were all here so I could ask you where these places are. Lilongwe and Blantyre, they're in Africa. They are in Malawi, 
And each of those cities is supposed to have 41 million people. So that's 82 million in a country which would be the prime example of what uh, Donald Trump has referred to as um, uh, bad word countries, uh, a country that has zero resources. Um, so it looks like population is the only resource that these places will have and how these countries will manage to uh, look after these people to me is a, is a great unknown. Um, uh, uh, let me just see if there's any other countries, cities of interest down over here. Oh, Kabul in Afghanistan. Of all, of all places, like think of the, the, the sort of armpit of uh, Asia, uh, Kabul, which was full of, uh, of uh, civil war, is supposed to have 50 million people in 2100 and be the 10th biggest city in the world. So, um, you know, what we used to think of London, Paris, uh, and New York as being, you know, big um, Western cities will be kind of like forgotten by 2100 when, when we size up the, um, the, 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 the world's largest cities at that time. And, um, you know, uh, it may mean all kinds of other changes too. Because, for example, if that's where the people are, that's where uh, the business may go. In other words, Western, Western companies who may say, look, um, you know, the future Starbucks of the world say, well, how am I going to open a Starbucks in Japan if half my customers are going to be gone in 50 years? Why don't I open a Starbucks in Lilongwe, Malawi, um, or in Blantyre, Malawi, where the population will be 41 million in 80 years? Now, uh, we know, Mr. Starbucks knows, that um, uh, the people there are desperately poor, but not everybody. So if there are 2 million middle-class people out of 41 million people, that's a lot of customers for Starbucks or for, or for uh, who knows who else, whatever a car company wants to sell them, whatever um, consumer goods companies want to sell, uh, they will have a, um, you know, a, a kind of a, captive market in a way um, uh, of people uh, who need their goods. The only problem is the ability to pay for them. But if, that, if there is a way to enrich the lives of these people, um, then uh, Africa will be the sort of uh, place to be for any worldwide enterprise uh, in the next 80 years. So uh, this is just a bit of a thought about, um, about uh, the world and the projections and populations and things. Um, I have some other things to speak about, but I'm wondering if somebody wants to ask me anything about this particular subject, anything to do with uh, fertility, migration, um, uh, mortality, countries, populations, any of this kind of thing. Uh, if you think what I said makes sense. I just was shocked when I was reading about that because I know world geography so well, and I can't possibly think of what a city of 80 million people is going to look like. So, um, you know, let me just stop for two seconds and see if anyone has any questions or comments.
Howard. I think uh, Howard's on the line. He has a question. Go ahead, Howard. Yeah, what will Montreal be in 2100? You know, unfortunately, <laughs> we don't count much. So, um, you know, if you go by what Toronto is, Toronto will be 25% bigger. And I would assume that barring any, you know, ridiculousness, we would be uh, somewhat the same. And the growth come, will come from um, migration from abroad, which is what we, uh, today, the, our government in Canada has set a goal of 1% uh, growth uh, by immigration. So 1% would be somewhere close to 350,000 people, and we haven't yet reached that number. Um, one of the ways that the countries around the world can mitigate some of these big changes is to say, let's open our doors to immigration uh, and not cherry pick as much as we were doing up until now. In other words, picking the best educated, the youngest, uh, the wealthiest, but to take people um, who uh, just want to live in a different country and who are not security threats. So that would lower the amount of people in Africa, for example, and raise the number of people in Europe, for sure, and in, uh, in East Asia, uh, to balance out the declines versus the growth. Now, uh, it's a good question because Japan is the country, the leading country in the world to face this problem. And they've looked at this problem with four eyes. And they've been trying to figure out what to do because the changes that I'm talking about in 50 years are happening there now. Um, the most obvious uh, solution is to allow immigration to come into Japan. But Japan is a country which is homogeneous. So in other words, somewhere around 98% of people in Japan are Japanese. And they don't believe or understand uh, the idea of a multicultural country. Uh, they, you know, their belief is, and as, as many countries, that Japan is for Japanese people and not for anyone else. And you could speak Japanese and you could be living in that country for 30 years and you're still not considered Japanese. Um, so a few years back, Japan, many years back, even 20 now, 30 years back, Japan was looking at this issue and they said, well, what can we do to increase the number of Japanese people? And so what they did was they said, you know what, let's look around the world and see where Japanese people moved to. And let's go to those places and try to bring them back to Japan. Now, obviously, uh, people from Japan moved to Canada and the United States, especially the United States. Um, but, you know, how many people in Canada and the United States of Japanese origin are willing to move back to Japan? Uh, you know, not, not many, especially not 30 years ago. But there was a country that received over a million Japanese in the 20th century, and that's Brazil. And so the Japanese government went to Brazil and offered all kinds of incentives for Japanese Brazilians to move back to Japan. And by the way, not just Brazil, but Peru also. Uh, so these incentives included uh, housing and education and transportation back to Japan, etc. cetera. Um, now, uh, an amazing thing happened. The Japanese 
people and government figured that the moment these Brazilian Japanese moved back to Japan, they would become, Jap they were Japanese, they looked Japanese, they have Japanese names. Um, they may not speak Japanese well, but they know some from their grandparents, uh, that they would be integrated pretty quick. Uh, I'll give you one example of how this failed. Uh, you know what a Japanese work ethic is? They come to work, you know, 20 minutes early and they leave 20 minutes late. They spend the whole day working, maybe not hard, but working at their offices and at their desks and in the factories. They run around like robots, you know. And the Japanese Brazilians were like every other Brazilian. You tell them to come to work at nine o'clock, they show up at 10 o'clock. Uh, they want a coffee break. They show up at 10 o'clock. They want a coffee break at 1030. They put their music on and they're dancing and they're not working. And then they go home and they're smiling and happy. Um, and that's the Japanese people were shocked, shocked, I say, shocked that the Brazilian Japanese were actually Brazilians, except that they had Japanese names and faces. And so this idea of sort of making instant Japanese people out of Japanese that came from abroad, that kind of faded as, as uh, employers, uh, you know, had all kinds of trouble with Brazilians showing up to work, keeping on work and, and finishing work. Um, and so by force, by force, the Japanese government had to look at a, other East Asian people who wanted to leave uh, their countries, not who didn't have to be paid to leave, but who wanted to leave, um, and to give them some sort of a toehold in the country, but not make them citizens. Uh, uh, something similar, I would say, to what the Gulf countries um, in, in the Persian Gulf are doing to uh, migrants from uh, India and Bangladesh and Pakistan. So they give them work permits, but they can't become citizens. And uh, Japan has started to open its doors to Vietnamese, especially, um, and Filipinos uh, to come to Japan to fulfill uh, jobs that are not filled there. Um, so now, now I'm trying to remember, does that answer the question that you asked or did I go off on a tangent? I don't remember. Yeah, it's okay. Um, any, um, any other, uh, I mean, do you find this kind of um, projections to be uh, shocking? Because I found them to be quite shocking. Um, the United Nations, by the way, has their own population estimation um, uh, for the next 80 years, and they have higher populations than this institution has, because what they did is they built in a higher fertility rate for women going forward. And of course, since we don't know what the future will be, um, you know, it's hard to say who's right. But, um, uh, you know, uh, even if these figures are not exactly right, uh, they're shocking enough to make any leader of any country think twice about uh, what services they will have to provide in the, in the medium term. Because uh, 80 years, is kind of like, you know, a lifetime. So people who are born today, your grandchildren who are born today 
will see these changes when they get to be, uh, you know, our age or a bit older. So it's not like uh, talking about an asteroid hitting the world in 2600. This is something that's almost immediate. Okay, thank you, Howard. What about Israel in 2100? Ah, yes, what a great question. Of all the Western countries in the world, Israel has the highest birth rate. Uh, and by Western countries, I mean all the countries in the OECD, that means all of the European countries, uh, Canada, the US, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea. Um, uh, yeah, pretty well, pretty well, all the, the 30 most, most uh, economically advanced countries in the world. Israel has the highest birth rate, which is still today somewhere touching three children per, per household. Uh, as you can probably guess, the explanation is that the ultra-Orthodox uh, have no um, birth control um, practices uh, to speak of. And they're uh, uh, in many communities are averaging seven plus children per woman. Um, the Arab-Israeli population has historically had a higher birth rate than the Jewish population, um, but that birth rate is uh, coming down um, to some degree as their community gets to be better off uh, and, you know, is more interested in education. Um, there is a huge correlation between high birth rates and poverty. So the poorest countries in the world countries like Niger, Mali, Burkina Faso, Afghanistan, they have the highest birth rates in the world. Is it because of sheer ignorance of birth control practices? Is it because religion plays such a strong role in their lives and religion forbids birth control? Um, is it because they believe that children can be an asset even at an age of seven, as I said, to go and look after the sheep? or to go and, and plant corn, um, it's, it's everything mixed together. But, uh, but we know from the past 50 or 60 years that as the world gets richer, um, as individual families get more money, their number of children being born goes down uh, at a steady rate. And um, uh, you know, I should also mention China, which had a compulsory one-child policy, if you might recall. Uh, why did they put that one-child policy into place? It's because the state said, look, we cannot afford to provide services for so many people, to provide schools, uh, to provide clothing, to provide everything, because in the olden days, you know, that's how communism worked. Um, they felt that more population would be a burden on the country. And so they ordered uh, a one-child policy uh, and was strictly enforced so that if someone had more than one child, only one child was allowed in school. Um, if someone had more than one child, they could be kicked out of the house that they were living in, you know, the house belonging to the state. Um, if they had more than one child, there would be no health services provided to the second child. And so um, this policy lasted over a generation. And um, it was only in the relatively recent times 
that they changed that one-child policy to a two-child policy. And the reason they did that was because they looked in the mirror, just like I just showed you, and they said, wait a minute, you know, if we keep on going like this, we'll have no people in the country. Um, there always was, interestingly enough, a, an exception to the rule of one-child policy for ethnic minorities in the country. But think of it, that seems to be counterintuitive. But ethnic minorities in the country, and China is more than 90% Chinese, so there was, there were, you know, a small, there were other minorities, including the Uyghur, uh, who are in the news these days. They were allowed to have more than one child per couple. Um, the uh, one-child policy led to a, um, an imbalance between male and female children. So if you're only allowed to have one child and the Chinese people valued males over females because of their, um, uh, let's say, their, um, their e increased economic uh, advantages, there were many cases of abortions taking place when it was discovered that the fetus was a female. And so normally in society, there is a slight, slight number, more, uh, more of males born than females. No one really knows exactly why, but the death rate of males under the age of one is higher than the death rate of females under the age of one. So therefore, maybe that's how nature even things up. But in China, their ratios were ending up something like 1.3 and 1.4 males per female. So that's what was being born 20 years ago. Now, guess what happens when you're 20 years old and 25 and you want a wife, and there are a third less women to choose from than there are demand for women. And so China has allowed um, East Asian people females to, um, to come to marry males, especially in the countryside, uh, because uh, males in the countryside have much less value uh, to society or to women than males in the city. So a woman is going to choose to marry because she could have her pick of the litter. She's going to choose to marry someone who's got, you know, more possibilities. And the poor guy working out on the farm somewhere in the hills, he has no possibilities. So the government of China is, has allowed Cambodians and Vietnamese and, and people from Myanmar, uh, women, to allow them to come to be married to uh, these, um, these partnerless uh, males. Very often these marriages don't work out for obvious reasons. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of misery around because of that, uh, you know, that policy. So it goes to show sometimes the population planning, you know, uh, you might think you have a good idea, but it doesn't always turn out to be what you think it's going to be. Okay, thank you, Howard. Thank you. Um, so Hershey, I, I know that yeah. uh, you deal with some, some you know, big topics, but uh, and and you mentioned a couple of weeks ago your your jogging and your and your exercise. Fitness. So my question to you, maybe yeah. to end the show, is what's making okay. you happy this week, outside of the news? Uh, outside of the news, well, I I have to 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 just hide back in the news. You might have heard. I'm sure you must have all heard that there was a successful trial of this uh, vaccine in England that had um, uh, very good results. 
from a, a reasonably large sample. And they are now going to uh, increase the sample by a huge number, maybe 10 to 20,000 people. And if that works, then we're really going to be on our, our way to a, an effective vaccine. So that, that certainly makes me happy. Um, I, as I said to you, and some of you who know me well, uh, you know, I used to ride to the library on my bike. You would always see me coming in with my bike helmet. Uh, today I was riding my bike on Il Bizarre. And, um, you know, uh, I find that um, uh, being active is something that is not only good for your physical health, but for your mental health. And so it's hard to be depressed it's hard to let the news get you down if you are, um, you know, exercising and your body's working out and you're huffing and puffing and you have a sense of accomplishment from, from, from that. And as I've said to people so many times, you don't need a gym to work out. Uh, I often will just go to the St. Joseph's Oratory and walk up and down the stairs a few times. Um, you don't need, you don't need anything. You just have to put your mind to it and make it, part of your life and that's what I do. Um, let, let me ask you a uh, question. You, yeah. you mentioned Il Bizarre. So I, I've done that route too. And uh -huh. what is the story with that home that's perennially selling bikes and stuff on the lawn? Have you noticed that home? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I know that's a kind of a, I would, yeah, I know that place. It's um, like, um, what do you call it? Garage sale type of place, right? It's like a 24 hour 365-day yeah. garage Yeah, it's, it's like, but, but the, it's kind of like an ongoing garage sale. So that's, that's, I've passed by that place many times. Oh, I don't, I don't, I was all around the island today, and I don't seem to remember all the junk that was out in the front yard, which usually they have. But uh, just to tell you that Il Bizarre is one of the few places inside the city of Montreal that has an ongoing commercial farm. There's not many, there's one. And Il Bizarre is also the only place in Montreal that has a trailer park where people live in trailers. And, um, you know, you could, uh, you, could uh, you know, find uh, double wides. And, you know, just if you drive down there, it looks like you're in some kind of Oklahoma suburb uh, full of trailers. And um, it's, it's not next to those mansions, though, I don't think. It's not far. It's <laughs> not far. It's on the western side of the uh, southwestern southwestern part of the island and the mansions are all along the north shore so uh, it's not near near but it's not that far but um it's a great place to cycle because the traffic there's not much traffic and there's you know uh it's nice and scenic and you're inside the city limits of the city of montreal so that's what's so nice about it okay but uh you know i urge people to find your passion at whatever you do uh, to try to make fitness uh, uh, at least the minimum of three, an hour a day, three days a week. That will keep you from sliding backwards. You won't go forward, but you won't go backwards. And um, you know, you have to do something for your heart, something for your muscles and something for your balance and flexibility. And all those three things together make up fitness. And um, you know, uh, like I said, I, I, you know, to go back to Japan, I was watching a, um, they had a 100 meter race and you had to be over 100 years old to enter. 
And I watched this, I watched this on a video and I'm seeing this guy running. I say, you know, he's not that slow. I mean, there's a lot of people who are watching us today right now who can't run as fast as this guy and he was over a hundred. So age is something that is a variable. It's variable. It's a, you know, it's a variable. It's not a determinant. Okay. Well, I have a suggestion for people when they're on their one hour walk. Some people like to look around, but if you have a smartphone, I, I highly recommend that you start listening to podcasts. If you have an Apple iPhone, then you can, there's something called Apple Podcast. If you're on an Android device, there are other ones you can use from Google. But it, it, once you do get it set up and you start listening to stuff, make a little bit of time for the Code St. Luke podcast, which is on all the podcast feeds. And you'll hear talks, including this one today, which will go up on the uh, podcast feed <laughs> later. So you can hear Hershey when you're on your walk as well. That's a great idea. And let me just add that when you're on your walk, um, Try to do it in such a way that you take, say, you're walking, take 20 seconds and count 20 in your head and walk as fast as you can and then stop at 20 seconds and then just keep on your normal walk and then do that a couple of times. And if you want to be fit, you just shorten the break times in between. You keep on walking. You don't stop. But um, that's like a simple and easy way to exercise your heart. Because if you are sort of ambling along and looking at this and looking at that and waving at people and, oh, look at this house and, oh, look at this garden, you're doing something, but you're not exercising your heart. You're exercising maybe your legs and your, uh, your glutes, but um, you have to do something to make your, take yourself out of the normal uh, rhythm and to make your heart work because that's the most important muscle that you have. Yeah. I'm... Okay. okay so, okay, I think they're I think they're Carol. calling you for your next uh, podcast. Yeah, somebody's calling. All right. Okay. Well, thank you. So much. Thank, well, thank you, everyone who joined us today on Zoom and on their telephone. Join us each day at two p.m. for the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. I'll Have see you next day. week. Okay. Bye bye. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for tuning in today. If you're listening on the 2 p.m. call-in, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.